Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Well, it's good to be with you here tonight. If uh, you happen to be a guest, my name's Brad. Get the privilege of hanging out with you. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 5, and then we're going to take a little time and jump into the book of Genesis uh, to catch up on a little bit of context, if we could. Um, just an update. We are, as you know, weeks away from occupying our new property, and so very excited about that, what that means. There's good and the bad, if we haven't mentioned that here. The good is we're about to go over there. The bad is some of our tech is already going over there, and so we're going uh, to be a little bit low tech over the next several weeks and lower and lower and lower until finally we can move. So anyway, just a heads up on that. And then last week, uh, I wanted to to make sure, you you know, we had these rock piles, right, that we had available, rocks available for you to grab. Mike did a great job walking through the text in chapter four of the rock piles that the people of God built just as a a sign of remembrance. And if for some reason uh, you didn't participate in that, just want to give you an opportunity to at least be praying with us because on both campuses, once we move over, uh, we're going to have rock pile monuments on each campus uh, just as a, a story to tell of the kids to say, hey, look, we committed to uh, make some renovations and to relocate and, and look at what God has done, look at God's faithfulness. So if you miss the actual rocks, certainly join us in prayer and be able to tell that story with us. That'd be awesome. Um, we're gonna now jump into chapter five and uh, you know, Joshua has taken over this mantle of leadership He's walked the people now across the Jordan. Uh, The first act that they did when they crossed was to do something, not digging in for fortifications, not taking defensive positions, but building this awkward rock pile that really helped them not at all in eyesight of the enemy. It's very strange. God sort of stacking the deck against himself, putting his people in a very, very vulnerable position. And remember from last week, you know, the battle ultimately is the Lord's. Well, that theme continues a little bit more even here here into uh, chapter 5, verse 1. What's going on now uh, around them, it says in in chapter 5, verse 1, it came about when all of the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all of the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel uh, until they had um, crossed, their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. Now remember, they knew very, very well what happened in Egypt. They knew about the plagues. They knew about the exodus. They knew about the Red Sea crossing. And what did they just see just off the horizon? But now the Jordan part, just like the Red Sea. And so they understand this is not going to go well for us, the people who are in the land. And so it says their hearts melted like wax. The word had spread. Psalm 20 says this in verse 7, that some boast in chariots and some boast in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. There, there is a sense that we as believers, much like these people, that our boasting really is not in us. Our boasting is in our God. Uh, and so these people now have learned, hey, God's going to go before us, and they're learning to trust him in that. And in verse 2, at that time, the Lord says to Joshua, I want you to do something very, very strange. I want you to make flint knives And what I want you to do is I want you to go now and circumcise, again, the sons of Israel a second time. 
So circumcision, of course, cutting the foreskin off of male genitalia. Now, why on earth would you take your army across the river with no retreat behind you? Why would your first move to build, to be, to build a rock pile? Uh, and then you're going to say, now take the entire fighting force of men and circumcise them, which would make them ineffective in battle. It, it doesn't seem to make sense until we understand the meaning of circumcision. So if you have your Bibles, jump to Genesis chapter 12. I want to look at three chapters quickly in Genesis chapter 12, 15, and 17. All three of them connect to this situation or issue of circumcision. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you have what some have suggested are some of the most important three verses in all of your Bible. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And what God is going to promise Abraham is a threefold promise of land, descendants, and blessing. But the key to it is what we're going to see here in verse 3. But let's read verses 1 and following. The Lord says, to Abram. Remember, Abram is the one that God called to himself out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abram has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has all the kids that become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And so it says, the Lord says to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives and from your father's house to the land, which I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in uh, your family, uh, all the nations of the earth now will be blessed. And so someone is going to come at the end of verse 3 from the line of Abram who's going to bless all the nations of the world. Now, Abram had no context for what you and I now know. Thankfully, because of the progress of revelation and the flow of human history, you and I can read that and go, huh, do we know of any guy who came from the family tree of Abram who was a blessing to, to the entire world, we look back at that and go, I, I think that's Jesus. And that is exactly correct. So this covenant is given in chapter 12. And a covenant, though, had to not only be given, but be ratified. Turn to chapter 15. This covenant is going to be ratified in chapter 15. And it's a very interesting ceremony uh, that starts in verse 6. It says that Abram in Genesis 15, 6, believed the Lord and it was credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. Some of your Bibles have cross references. If so, look and see. You probably have a Romans chapter 4, verse 3 cross reference. Uh, it's really this verse is the basis for the entire book of Romans and that we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, just like Abram was. And so it continues there in verse 7. God says to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I gave you this land to possess it. And he said, oh, Lord God, how could I know that I will possess it? And so he says to him, okay, bring, uh, bring a three-year-old heifer, bring a three-year-old female goat and a ram, bring some turtle doves and a young pigeon. We're going to have a contract negotiation together. Now, you and I, if we were doing business together, we would set out terms of an agreement. We would negotiate. When we both agreed upon the negotiations, we would ink the contract, sign it, and now we're both committed to it. They didn't have contracts in this day. What they would do is they would take animals like this, cut them in half, separate the parts, disgusting as it is, and they would both walk through the parts together. As if to say, look, we've all agreed May this happen to you and more also if you don't fulfill your end of this promise. And so in verse 10, sure enough, they bring these animals to him. He cuts them in two. He lays them on opposite sides together, uh, but he didn't cut the birds. I guess they're too small. Anyway, verse 11, the birds of prey came for the carcasses. Abram drove them away, or Abram drove them away. Verse 12, when the sun was going down, this is where it gets interesting. The sun's going down and a deep sleep 
fell upon Abram and terror and darkness fell upon him. So here's, here's Abram now, the, the parts are separated. He and God are gonna pass through the parts and make an agreement together and God puts Abram to sleep. And as he's asleep, by the way, it is not necessarily a, a restful sleep. Uh, God's gonna let him know that this will not be easy for his family tree. In fact, it will be very, very difficult. Difficulty is coming, verse 13. Uh, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So do you know of anything in your Bible where the people of God were enslaved? I mean, this is Egypt, right? This is the story of slavery in Egypt. Verse 14, but I will also judge the nations whom uh, they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. That's the exodus. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your father's house in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. By the way, he's buried in a city called Hebron. It's in Israel today. I've been there. I mean, you can go see it. His tomb is there, uh, and he died, sure enough, at a very old age. And then, verse 16, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not complete. Now, we're going to talk more about the iniquity of the Amorite next week, because think of it this way. The people of God were in the land like light, influencing the land with this is who God is, and this is how humanity is called to live. And they lived according to God's design, but the other nations did not. They served other gods. And so when these people now go into Egypt, there's no influence of godliness in the land, and it just festers. More immorality, more wickedness, more debauchery, more idolatry. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it, in the patience of God, he doesn't smite them. He allows it to continue. But there's a point where the iniquity of the Amorite is complete, and the conquest is going to happen. That's what we're going to get into now next week. And so sure enough, uh, verse 17, it came about now when the sun had set and it was very dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, a, a presence of fire now before him, uh, and it passed between the pieces. Now we've seen the burning bush, you've seen the concept of the pillar of fire by night, God showing himself in some ways as fire, uh, even the New Testament, the uh, Book of Acts chapter two, the, the spirit of God comes in tongues as fire. So you've got this presence of fire that passes through the parts. Question, where's Abram? Very important you see this. Where's Abram? Does he pass through the parts with God? You can talk to me, it's cool. No, no he doesn't. Why? This is a unilateral covenant. This is not an agreed upon if you then I. This is you go to sleep, I. I swear by myself, I promise by myself, your deeds, your behavior. Somebody emailed me here a couple weeks ago. Do you think the issues that are happening with Israel in the Middle East is because of their disobedience? Has God forsaken them? I said, no, because he passed through the parts on his own and he's promised them land, seed, and blessing. Now that's not to say there's not consequences for sin. My, my point is in this text, God passes through on his own. And he says, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant, covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land, blah, 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 blah. Okay, great. Covenant given, 12. Covenant ratified, 15. Turn to chapter 17. There needs to be a sign of a covenant. You would ink a contract and go, here's our agreement. You said, what's the sign of the covenant that God gave Abram in chapter 12? Here it is now, chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. Now, Abram was 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you 
and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, and he said, look, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations, so much so, verse 5, no longer will your name be called Abram, which means exalted father, but the, uh, the Hebrew word for spirit is the word ruach. He says, you're no longer Abram, you're Abraham. It's, it's an addition. It's not just exalted father. It's exalted father now of many nations. You will be now Abraham. But I will make <coughs> you the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful. I will make, you, uh, make nations of you, plural. A king will come forth Kings will come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Because again, it's not based on their participation. God passed through the parts on his own. And he says, I will give uh, to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And thus, uh, God rather said further to Abraham now, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. Drop down to verse 14, but anyone who is uncircumcised, who's a male, and is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person is cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Why? It's a physical sign, like Mike said last week, of a deeper spiritual reality. It really wasn't about the physical act of circumcision. It's that circumcision told a deeper story of God's promise to Abram. And they have the sign of the covenant to show, I am willingly participating now in this covenant that God made with us. And so it serves as a sign. It's also, if you recall, Mike said, there's two reasons for signs in your Bible. One is it, it shows a deeper reality. Two is it gives you an opportunity to tell the story. In a pagan land, these people where bathing was in the public in front of everyone would have been very obviously from something different than what the pagan lands were used to. They go, hey, question, I'm curious, your body looks different than mine. He goes, oh yeah, I'm circumcised. It's a sign of the covenant that I have with my God. Who's your God? Oh, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here you go. And you're telling the story of the faithfulness of God. By the way, as you turn back now to Joshua chapter five, um, Moses in Exodus 4 doesn't circumcise his kids. Now you'd think Moses, like it, it was like five minutes ago, God said to do that and you didn't do that. And there's a, a really interesting story in chapter 4 of his wife that now circumcises all of his children and it says that she throws the foreskin at his feet like in disgust. Like, well, if you're not going to be obedient, I'll be obedient. And she's not even of the people of God, right? She's a Midianite woman. And then you've got in Luke chapter two, Jesus, it says in Luke two, when he was eight days, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was called Jesus. So even into the New Testament, this uh, process continued. Now, notice at the bottom though, of verse uh, two of chapter five of Joshua, he says, make flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel a second time. Now that's interesting. Well, why would you circumcise them a second time. Well, if you recall, they came out of Egypt 
And when they came out of Egypt, everyone was circumcised when they came out. But the adults, or the grown-ups, if you will, sent spies into the land. The spies gave a bad report. Therefore, the entire old generation died in the wilderness. And apparently, they didn't continue the tradition of circumcision to their kids for the 40 years that they're in the desert. And so this now is the next generation. And he's saying, look, Moses circumcised every male, but now you've got a new generation. And so we're going to go back to the old traditions and we're going to bring them into this generation as well. You circumcise them a second time. Now, if you look at verses three and following, Joshua made for himself a flint knife. He circumcised the sons of Israel at a place that's called Gibeoth Haraloth. It means literally the hill of the foreskins. There's some commentators who wonder if they built another monument that none of us would want to go visit, but I'm curious. Anyway, verse four, this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all, um, or circumcised them rather, all of the people who came out of Egypt who were males, who were men of war. They died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. Verse five, for all the people who have come out uh, were circumcised, but all the people who were in the wilderness along the way came out of Egypt. They were not circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked now for 40 years in the wilderness. So we, we walked through that a little bit. Now, verse seven, drop down to there for a second. Their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised along the way. Now, when he had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach from, of Egypt from you. So the name of the place was called Gilgal to this day. So what, what's happening here? So he brings the people across. Remember the idea of God stacking the deck against himself. Brings the people across the river. There is no retreat. Okay, they're in eyesight of Jericho. What do they do? First thing, build a rock pile. Second thing, mutilate your fighting force. Take them out of commission. Um, how long were they out of commission? Well, men, you could like, you can guesstimate in your mind how long it would take you to be at fighting strength if as an adult male you were circumcised. We do have a biblical story in Genesis 34 of a girl named Dinah, one of the daughters of Jacob. She is unfortunately raped in the story and her two brothers, Simeon and Levi, decide they're gonna exact vengeance. And the way they exact vengeance is they talk them, it's a weird story, the guy who raped her then wants to marry her, and they say, yeah, 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 you can marry my sister, but first, you and everyone in your city has to be circumcised. I don't know what kind of influence this guy had in the city, but he talks every guy into the city to doing it. So everybody's there, and it says that after three days, those two boys go into the city and kill everybody. Now, I'm not condoning their action. What I want you to understand is it's three days after circumcision and they're still not able to wield the sword and two guys kill everybody. So here's Joshua now and he's just now mutilated his, his fighting force for at least three days and they're in eyesight now of Jericho. Now, I want you to just play it out. You're in Jericho and you see the people and they just cross, they, the water's parted. You're like, what was that? And then they come across and you think they're coming and then they stop and they stay and they stay and they stay. It's days. You can imagine like, man, we should send out scouts. They're like, no way, it's a trap. Don't do it. Like, what are they doing? I don't know what they're doing. And you're just, you're just beginning to sort of freak out. And your trust is in the walls of your city. You're in the most fortified city in the land, literally. There was not a better fortified city in all of the land. It's a double-walled city. And so you're like, I'm not going anywhere. We're staying right here. 
Meanwhile, these people now are circumcised. They're waiting. It's taking now days. Verse 10, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they also observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month in the desert plains of Jericho. So not only do they build a rock pile, not only do they mutilate their fighting force for at least three days, now they're like, no, we're not going to war yet. We're going to do the Passover. So now they're going to have a nice Passover meal and celebrate and sing and dance and break bread and eat together. And they're having a celebration of the Passover. By the way, it's the exact same day, the 14th of Nisan, that they celebrated the first Passover coming out of Egypt. They've celebrated three so far. One coming out of Egypt, one when Moses went to get the law, one here. So for 40 years, they've wandered. They have not celebrated the Passover. What's happening here is this idea of consecration before conquest. So they've crossed the land, but no, no, you've got to be physically demonstrating the sign of the covenant. You also need your hearts to be right. We're going to enjoy Passover together because it's really not about going to battle. It's really about being faithful to your faithful God. It's a very interesting story for these guys. No rush. Let's walk with God first. Now, verse 11, God does something else interesting. On the day of the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Now, think about this. What have they eaten for 40 years? God has miraculously provided this bread-like substance, like dew on the ground. Some dude walked out, and he goes, what is it? Which in Hebrew is manna. And so sure enough, they've been eating this what is it cake for 40 years. Occasionally, a couple, you know, quails coming through, and they'd eat a little quail until they puked. That, that, that's a, that was not a pleasant experience for them. They've been eating this bread-like cake, and now figs and grapes, and they've got cakes that they've now made and unleavened bread. And I mean, can, can you imagine how good that must have tasted? But, but not only that, I want you to notice verse 12. The manna at that point ceased from the day they ate the produce of the land. So God's like, look, um, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yes. You want some more of that? Yes. It's over there. And by the way, what I've provided for you every day, yeah, I'm not doing that anymore. So if you want to eat, it's over there. I mean, it's like parents when your kids finally moved out of the house and you got them off the balance sheet and you said, I am not feeding you anymore. If you want to eat, it's called a job. No job, no eat, okay? That's in some ways what they've done here. Now, here's the thing. Joshua, though a seasoned leader, uh, He's going he's gonna to now, in some ways, it looks like maybe disappear from the crowd during the Passover, and he gets a little closer look at Jericho because he knows that's the first battle. And he has uh, no battle plan. He has, at this point, no word from God. Uh, Equipment-wise, he's looking at something he's never seen before, a fortified city. Uh, he's never laid siege to a fortified city. He has no battering ram. He has no catapult. He has no siege works. He has arrows and spears against a fortified city. That's, that fight is over. And so what's he, what's he going to do? And he, he, in some ways, it looks like kind of disappears for a second. And then in verses 13 through 15, he is going to encounter one of the most intriguing figures in all of your Bible. A guy that calls himself now the captain of the Lord's host. Look at verse 13. It came about when Joshua 
was by Jericho. Now, we don't know if he went and did a full recon trip to the walls. We don't know if he just kind of walked away and was watching because they're in the plains of Jericho, so we don't know exactly where he is. But, but he's having this view now of the city that he's going to have to go and conquer. And behold, his eyes, uh, he raises, lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword in his hand. I don't know quite if it was like, whoa, (laughs) what the heck is that? Or if he came over a rise and just saw this man standing, whoever this man is, his sword is drawn and he's ready for battle. And Joshua, you got to love Joshua, by the way. Joshua's like, look, are you for us or our adversaries? Like, are you on my side or is it on right now? I mean, he is such a pit bull. I love this guy. Are you on my side or are you on their side? And what's interesting in verse 14, this man simply says, no. No, in fact, rather I indeed came as the captain of the Lord of hosts. I don't fight for you and I don't fight for them. Now that's an interesting experience for Joshua because he's like, I need, am I fighting you or are you fighting? Like who, who, who is this guy? And this guy says, no, I'm, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts. It, literally, some of your Bibles might say the captain of the Lord's armies. So whoever this guy is, he is in charge of the Lord's armies. And so Joshua, in response to that, as you can imagine, fell on his face to the earth. He bows down and he says to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Did you hear that? What has my Lord to say to his servant? Joshua immediately takes a posture of humility. He, he's beginning to understand, I don't know who this man is, but, but he is something other than anything I've ever seen. So what does my Lord have to say to his servant? You also wonder, did Moses tell him about the bush? Did Moses explain to him, hey, God appeared in a fire? And in that, I, I experienced his presence. Watch what happens next. This captain of the Lord's host says to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. Just like the burning bush in Exodus 3. And Joshua did so. So Joshua is having an encounter that mirrors what Moses had. Now we've seen that over and over and over. Remember, God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I parted the Red Sea, I parted the Jordan. As I was with Moses, I'll be with you. I came to him in a burning bush, I'm gonna come to you in a, in a way. And I told Moses to take his shoes off because it was holy ground. Now Joshua's being told the same thing. And so it's, it's meant to sort of mirror. Whoever this captain of the Lord of hosts is, he's, he's deity. He is God. And he's saying, just like the burning bush, take your shoes off, this place is holy. So in verse 13, he's called a man. In verse 14, he's the captain of the Lord of hosts. In verse 15, he's telling Joshua to take his shoes off. Who is this guy? Now, we've seen a couple other glimpses of this type of figure. In Exodus 18, the Lord appeared to Moses by the oaks of Mamre in a physical appearance. Uh, Jacob is going to wrestle with one in Genesis 32 who's simply called a man and yet has the power to blow out the socket of his hip with a touch. And then you've got uh, Numbers chapter 22, a guy by the name of Balaam, whose eyes is opened and he sees what, what is called in Numbers 22, the angel of the Lord. So who is this man 
this captain of the Lord's host, this angel of the Lord. Well, it's commonly called what theologians call a theophany. It's a, an appearance of God. And it's worth noting that when we talk about Jesus, we tend to think Jesus began in the uh, birth narrative in the Gospels in Bethlehem. But we need to understand Jesus is pre-incarnate. Jesus is pre-existent. John 1 says that nothing came into being that has come into being but through him. Colossians 1 also echoes that. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, through him and for him. So whoever this God figure is, it looks to be some sort of pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And what's beautiful to me about this picture is it expands our view of Jesus. See, we, we tend to kind of imagine Jesus like we've seen in all those really bad Christian movies where he just walks around waiting to give people hugs in a bathrobe, you know? The, the loving side of Jesus. And, and we never see this idea of him being uh, sword-drawn, warrior. And yet, if this is Jesus, and by the way, I think it is, uh, is that the only time in the Bible we see him with the sword drawn? Nope. Revelation 19. Listen to this. It says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and his head uh, was like a di his head was uh, many diadems, and he had a name that was written on him that knew one, no one knew but himself. He was clothed in uh, with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was the Word of God. And all the armies which were in heaven, clothed in fine linen, by the way, this is us, clothed in fine linen, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth came a sharp sword that he was ready to strike down. Uh, the nations, and he would rule them with an iron fist. The best part of that picture in Revelation 19, by the way, which, by the way, that's a triumphal entry. I mean, I get the donkey thing, and that's what we call it. That's triumphal. He's got a sword in his mouth. He's the only one in the armies of God that is armed. The battle is his. And that pattern is true not only in Revelation, but that pattern is true here. So here we've got now the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, sword drawn, leading God's armies. A couple observations that I want to just make from this text because there's a lot going on here. One would be this. One of the themes I see is consecration before conquest. So Joshua is really not like teaching them sword play as if that's the most important thing to know. Joshua is teaching them how to present themselves to God. And I would say that that battle has not changed. The number one battle that we fight is a battle of abiding. It's really not about the, the Jerichos you're facing. It's really not about the enemies that are out there. It's really not about those things. The real battle is, am I presenting myself to the Lord? Am I consecrated before conquest? Uh, because he'll handle the conquest. We'll get to that in a second. But to consecrate ourselves, what does that mean for us? It means that daily abiding is the, the greatest battle we can fight. And the victory comes not in the skill of our hands, not in our battle plan. The victory comes because we open ourselves to God and we're with him. And because we're with him, we are consecrated before him. Second, it is still like God to stack the deck against himself. If you were a military strategist, you would never in a million years do what Joshua did. Never. And, and better said, never in a million years do what God told Joshua to do. Because it's, it's madness. And yet God stacks the deck against himself and he still does. I'm mindful of 2 Corinthians where Paul's talking about 
his frailty, and he says this. He says, my grace, God speaking to him as, as Paul's talking about the issues. In fact, he has a, what he calls a thorn in his flesh. We don't really know what it is. Uh, but he, he prays three times that the Lord would remove it. And the Lord goes, no, I'm not going to remove your weakness. If I removed your weakness, this is my transliteration, and then we'll look at the text. If I remove your weakness, you won't need me. I want you to continue in the weakness. And then God says to him now in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says to him, look, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Look, my biggest concern for you is not, is not necessarily your weakness, it's your strength. It's that you're, you're talented and articulate and you're a go-getter and you'll do what most people won't do in the workplace to accomplish whatever you want and in that, you'll do it in the flesh. It's the person who goes, oh, I am a hot mess, holy mackerel. God, I know nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. The willing is present, the doing of the good is not. I've got this continual issue I've got this besetting sin. I've got this flesh. Oh, God, I need you. That's the person who boasts in the gospel. And so it's a beautiful thing that God continually stacks the deck against us, that it's not, it's not your strengths that we should glory in. It's our weakness, because in our weakness, his strength is perfected. And then finally, I think it's just the reality that God still fights the battles. You know, we, we, we tend to want to take things into our own hands. We want to go and make things right, and we want to right wrongs, and we want to get involved, and, and I'm just mindful, like Romans 12 says this, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If the Lord fights my battles, and I'm really I'm really not as sensitive to people that throw shade at me because it kind of doesn't matter. The Lord fights my battles. You say whatever you want. I don't care. If the Lord fights my battles, then I'm really not trying to build my ego to be something awesome. It kind of doesn't matter because anything that I have awesome is Christ. Anything that was my gain is Christ, lost compared to Christ. And so because he's fighting the battles, I'm just not, I'm not as triggered. I'm not as easy to go off the handle. I'm not like fighting to win. I'm not like trying to beat you to the stoplight. I'm not, you know, flooring it through the yellow. So I saved a minute and a half. You know, I'm not, I'm not really worried about that. The Lord's the one who fights my battles. And what it does is it allows us to be still and know that he is God. I just, I just imagine what these people would have felt like for now days camping, looking at Jericho going, dude, are we going to, like, are we going to go at some point? It's like, not yet. God's got this in his timing. Not yet. And then you want us to circumcise? Like, all of us? Yeah. Okay. Then we're going to enjoy the Passover? Yeah. God's fighting the battles. And boy, I don't know about you, but I can tell you this. I want to fight it. And I want to push timing, and I want to fight the Lord on stuff. And uh, boy, if we could just learn to rest. Well, one final thing, and, and it's kind of related to this, that whole consecration before conquest. Josh and I were chatting before tonight. I cannot help but, but feel in some ways we're living this passage here at this campus as we're getting ready to move on to the land. You know, and it just kind of strikes me, consecration before conquest. Thankfully, we're not gonna go fight any battles. There's no walls. Well, they took the fence down to, today, so that helps. But there's no walls coming down. But I, I will say this, 
Maybe there's something there for us to say, well, what would it look like to consecrate ourselves now? Let's get our relationship with Jesus dialed in so when we go over to the new property, there's just a sense of like he's going first in us, if that makes sense. Just something maybe to think about. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for passages like this that though tucked in the Old Testament and full of some intrigue and some interesting things, that maybe just have some insights for us today. And Lord, more than anything, we just want to learn to open to you, to be with you, to allow you to go before us, to consecrate ourselves before you. We live in a world that's very focused on self. And so, God, we want to decrease, allow you to increase. And I just pray that it gives us not only something to to think about and maybe even pray about throughout the week of what consecration before conquest even looks like in our own life, but that, Lord, even as we get into some open groups for those that are interested, that there might just be some things to talk about and we can have some good conversation about your word and how it, how it impacts our life. And so, God, we are grateful for the privilege to be the people of God gathered together under the authority of your word that we might learn about Jesus, our king. And so thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.